Today's the day. Y'all ready for this? Today's the day. Today's the day that some of us have been looking forward to for the past 51 weeks. Today is the day that uh, we get to depart for Green Valley Bible Camp. Awesome, awesome. This year, their theme at Green Valley Bible Camp is happy. Happy or blessed. The Greek word makarios, from which we get blessed, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, means happy. And uh, our lessons this week focus on the Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, talking about being blessed or being happy, being makarios. And we wind up on Friday with the Bible class being entitled for all of us to teach. They're teaching on Friday, being truly happy, a summation or summary of the Beatitudes, because that's what the Beatitudes are all about. They're about the blessed life or, or being happy, living a happy life. And, and the good Lord knows that, that we all need to, a little more happiness in our lives. In fact, as I got to thinking about that theme and being truly happy and those sorts of things, I, I got to think of thinking about some of the, some of the sadness some of the stress, some of the heartache, some of the anxiety and depression that has hovered over this congregation and some of its members over the past few weeks in particular when it comes to illness, death, lack of attendance due to some of those things and other personal struggles and tragedies that over the past few weeks in particular have brought a number of us to our knees and kind of robbed us of any joy and happiness that we might have had to begin with. And, and I, got to, I got to thinking about Jesus. And, and as all of this kind of developed, I got to thinking about him who was made in the likeness of his brethren and tempted in all things as we are. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 17 and 18 in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. And, and as I thought about all of those things and, and the need to be happy and, and some of the stresses that some of us have been under and Jesus, who was made like us, I got to thinking about he and how about Jesus and about how he was pretty much always, and I want you to think about this, Jesus was pretty much always with the exception of just a very rare few cases, happy. Jesus was pretty much always happy and at peace. And you can see this as you read through the scriptures with a few minor exceptions, but they are the rare exception. And as I got to thinking about Jesus and how he seemed to always be at peace and how he always seemed to, to be happy or contented. I'm not talking about running around with a, with a big foolish grin. I'm talking about a peace and a contentment and a, and a happiness and an inner security and, and joy. And as I got to thinking about that, I got to thinking about the fact that there's a, a particular sentence or sentiment that you will never see in the scriptures. And I have never seen it there because it is not there. And that sentiment is simply this. And Jesus was sad. That's not in the scriptures. And Jesus was sad. It's not there. It's not there any more than a sinner's prayer of faith for salvation is there. It's simply not there. 
You will never find that word, that, that phrase in the scriptures. Now, this is true no matter what he had to endure in his ministry, up until we'll, we'll get to a, an exception up near the end. You're still not going to see that particular sentence, but anyway, stay with me. The scripture does tell us about others that were sad. For example, the scriptures tell us about the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, who according to verse 22, was sad at Jesus' word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. See, he was sad because he was unwilling to take up his cross and follow Jesus. We would also note the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, which we talked about in the adult class, both this week and last week. They were sad because they had lost their hope. Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 21. But we don't see that word in connection with Jesus. We don't see sad, sadness, depression, or discouragement as words that occur in connection with Jesus anywhere in the scriptures. Now, to be fair, because I know some of you are probably thinking this, and this is true, some may say, well, well, Isaiah wrote that he would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 3, and that's true. The Bible does say that, but did you ever notice that in the very next verse, it goes on to explain the reason why he was acquainted with grief and sorrows. It tells you in Isaiah 53, 4, because he surely bore our griefs and sorrows. Yes, he was acquainted with them because he bore ours. And while the scripture also does say in Matthew chapter 26, verses 37 and 8, that Jesus was sorrowful and distressed as he entered Gethsemane to pray just before his arrest and crucifixion, that is an incredible rarity in a three and a half year ministry that you see Jesus sorrowful and distressed. You just don't see that a lot. Matter of fact, you don't see it much at all, maybe one other time in the Gospels other than this. I mean, it, it was, yes, it did happen because he was made like us, but it was an incredible rarity. And, and who wouldn't be sorrowful and distressed about to go through what he was about to go through? We can't begin to imagine what it would be like to be one with the Father, to leave the glories of heaven, to leave equality with God behind, to come to this earth, and then for the one time in all eternity, having to be separated from God the Father because of the sins of the world. We can't even begin to fathom that. We often think in terms of the physical suffering, which were incomprehensible to us in reality, but what he suffered as a result of being separated from his Father, of having to have his soul go to Hades even though it was not abandoned and left there and, and all of those things it, it just who wouldn't have sorrow or be distressed over that <laughs> but here's the thing if it had been us we'd have been sorrowful and distressed and depressed and all of those things a lot sooner than that three and a half years worth of ministry if we went through some of the things that that man went through it's also true that we see him weep twice in the scriptures, it is written that Jesus wept. Once, when everyone around him was weeping over the death of Lazarus in John 11, 33 through 35, we see him weep there. And once, as he approached the city of Jerusalem for the final time, as he considered what those people were going to have to suffer as a result of their choice to reject him, that's in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44. But did you notice right there? Both times when Jesus wept, it was because of his sorrow for other people. It wasn't because of what he was going through. 
What did he tell the women on the way to the cross? Don't weep for me, daughters of Jerusalem. Jesus wasn't weeping and sad. Those, those two accounts of him weeping that I just mentioned, he was weeping because of the sorrow of others. Just like Isaiah 53, 3 and 4. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Surely our sorrows he bore. Our griefs he carried and our sorrows he bore. But as for Jesus himself in the scriptures, as we see him go through his day-to-day -day life, we see a lot of things. We see people that don't believe in him. We see people that, that reject him. We see all kinds of things happen to him. We see him leaving certain areas. We see all, all of these. And, and, but we still, despite all that Jesus went through, we don't see Jesus ever being sad or discouraged or full of anxiety. Or, or It just doesn't say those things about him. Jesus was consistently a truly happy person throughout the vast majority of his earthly ministry, despite the worst the world could throw at him. Don't you want some of that? I want some of that. And in all due fairness and objectivity, while it is true that you will never find a verse either that, that says that, and Jesus was happy, We know that he was because of verses like Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 20, which says, he who heeds the word wisely will find good, and whoever trusts in the Lord, happy is he. And whoever trusts in the Lord, that is that person that is fully committed to God, fully trusting God, that person is happy. And let me tell you what, nobody ever trusted God any more than Jesus did. And if Proverbs 16 is 20, 1620 is true, happy is he who trusts in the Lord. There was never a happier person that walked the earth than Jesus because he trusted his father completely. That's where his happiness came from. In fact, we read after he came out of the garden in Matthew chapter 26, verse 46. I'm sorry. We read in the garden after he's prayed three times in Matthew 26, verse 46, some words that have always, always stayed with me. He said, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Think about that. It's like, oh, hey, guess what? The package I've been waiting for is here. Let's go get it. Jesus is, see, my betrayer is at hand. Let, let us go. Let, let us go do this. And how could he be like that? Knowing what was going to happen? I'll tell you why. Because he's just prayed three times to his father, not my will, but thine be done. He's left his struggle in the hands of God. He is completely committed to his father's will. So he's ready to go do it. Jesus was a happy person consistently throughout pretty much of all of his earthly ministry. Despite everything he had to endure, everything he had to experience personally. And here's the thing as we talk about the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Here's the thing I want to get across. There's been roughly 400 years of prophetic silence. Jesus has, has grown up, become a man, been, been, been baptized. And he started his earthly ministry right there in, in Matthew 3, uh, 3 and 4. And the first sermon, listen, if God had something to say to you and he's been quiet for 400 years... Do you believe probably one of the first things he'd say to you is one of the most important, something he's just waiting to tell you? Well, that's exactly what the Sermon on the Mount is. Kids that are going to camp, remember this. This is what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's the first sermon. It's the first one that we have recorded, chronologically, if you will. And, and, and right out of his mouth, right at the beginning, Jesus begins with this, happy is he who. 
God wants you to be happy. God knows that you're going to go through some stuff. God knows that you're going to have to endure and experience some stuff on this earth. But Jesus starts right out his ministry. Jesus, who most all of, of his ministry, with rare exceptions, was a, a happy person. He starts right out with this instruction, and I want us to go there. Open your Bibles if you haven't already. I want you to look in Matthew chapter 5 with me. This is going to become very familiar this week at Green Valley, and, and I know that most of us probably can quote most of this, but, but I want you to see this, this blessed, this happy. One of the first classes I did when I came here to Shoto was on this very thing, so I won't take a lot of time to do it, but I, I want us to get this. Listen, it says in Matthew chapter 5, Verse 1, seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed or happy are the poor in spirit. What it means to be poor in spirit is bankrupt in spirit. I know I'm a sinner. I know how worthless I am. And he says, happy are those people. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Listen, you can't become a member of the kingdom of heaven unless you are willing to humble yourself and understand what a sinner you are. Until you are willing to understand how much you need Jesus and you humble yourself that you are spiritually bankrupt. But those people that do, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, so they're happy people. He goes on, verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The idea here, it sounds like a contradiction. How can you mourn? Blessed or happy are those who mourn? Yes. The idea here as he builds this, this, this up is Happy are those who mourn over their own sins. They realize they're spiritually bankrupt. They, they know what kind of person they are, so they're mourning over their own sins. Listen, are you sorry that you're a sinner? you sorry for what your sins did to God? Can you therefore be happy because of the promise here that you should be comforted? Has God comforted you in Christ? Does that make you blessed? Does that make you happy? That's exactly what he's talking about. Blessed are those who mourn over their own sins, for they are the ones that shall be comforted. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. By the way, this, uh, this is the Wednesday night topic that I have to preach on. There's, there's quite a bit there about inheriting the earth. Um, blessed are the meek, those who, not to give away everything for those going to camp, the humble. Listen, arrogant people that are always in everybody's face are not happy people. Those people that have always got to one-up somebody else and get in your face, if they were happy people, they'd be a lot more humble. It's humble people that realize who they are. They realize their own problems and shortcomings that are a lot happier people. And, and that's his point, and I'll leave it at that. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? For they shall be filled. It is only they that will be filled. It is only those that are hunger for, uh, hungering for God's righteousness who want to be right with God. They know they're bankrupt in spirit. They're sorry or mournful over, over their sins. That humbles them, and they're just hungry for the word of God to become better people. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for they, they're the ones that shall be filled. If you're not hungry for the word of God, you're not going to be filled with it. Happy are those people. Happy are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. It's a wonderful thing to be merciful to others because you know God's promises that he'll be merciful to you. Blessed or happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Some people that just have these righteous, pure hearts, they get hurt a lot in this life. They wear their heart on their sleeve. They're always trying to do the right thing. He said, those people are happy, for they know in the end they're going to see God. Blessed or happy are the peacemakers. People are fighting all the time are not happy people. Peacemakers are happy. It's a happier life. 
for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed or happy are those who are persecuted for righteous' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Persecuted? Happy? Really? Yeah, uh-huh. Because if you know that you're going against the grain of the world, if you know that you're, that you're doing what God wants you to do, that the rest of the world is not going to be happy with you. It is a validation when you stand on the word of God and that you live for God that the world that doesn't know God is not going to like what you have to say and do. And that should make you happy because you know that yours is the kingdom of heaven. He, he goes on and makes this point and stretches it out even more in the verses that follow. I saw a t-shirt a couple of days ago that said, I would rather stand with God and be condemned by the world than to stand with the world and be condemned by God. That's Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 and following there for a little way. So we see at the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus, who was happy throughout, with rare exceptions, throughout his entire earthly ministry because he was doing God's will, he starts right out with this message, this is how to be happy. Here's how it's done. Sermon on the Mount, Beatitudes, here it is. But then, up near the end of his ministry, we see it validated again. We see that night, before he was arrested, Jesus was joyful. He says to his disciples, up here in uh, John chapter 15 and verse 11, the night before he's arrested and crucified, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus did not sit there that night saying, oh, woe is me, I've got this terrible thing I've got to go through. You guys have no idea what this is going to take. Uh, that's not who Jesus was. You know what Jesus told them that night? He said, I want you to have the same joy when you're facing your struggles that I got going to the cross tonight. I want you to have my joy in you, and I want that joy to be full. See, God wants you to be happy in your Christianity, joyful in your obedience to him. That, that is the whole thing here. We, we read on again a little later on that same night when, when Jesus is praying to his father in John 17, 13. He says to his father, but now I come to you in these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus prayed to God that night just before he's arrested and crucified. John 17, and he says to God, he says, I want them to have my joy filled in themselves. That's, that's the whole reason that I spoke to them, that they could have my joy. Jesus that night still had joy. Listen, if he hadn't, he wouldn't have said to them, I want you to have some of this, right? Because he wouldn't have had any to give. But he said, I want my joy. Father, give it to them, the joy I've got. Even as he went to the cross, John 17, 13, yes, even as he went to the cross. And, and so, so we look at the Beatitudes in the beginning. We, we look at, at John near the end when he's going to the cross that night. And, and it's not just at the beginning and the end, but throughout everything in between in his ministry as well. We don't see the phrase that Jesus was sad or disheartened or discouraged or depressed or defeated or overwhelmed. Even in what he went through. Think about some of the things he went through where you don't see those phrases. You don't see the words in Jesus was sad or down when he had to teach the same lessons over and over and over to disciples who still didn't get it. John chapter 14, verses 8 through 11. 
In Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, for example, over and over and over, you do not see the word sad or depressed or defeated or discouraged or overwhelmed even when many of his disciples chose to walk away, John chapter 6, verses 60 through 66, because they refused to take the time to learn and digest the truth that he was teaching. Many of his disciples walked away, it says. And Jesus didn't go sit in the corner and cry about it. What did Jesus say to the rest? He said, you want to leave too? See, because what Jesus was not going to do was compromise the truth. Because what gave Jesus his happiness, and I'm, I'm going to give away my punchline for later, but I can't help it. Okay. I can't. I'm just not going to. What made Jesus happy, what gave him that joy, what gave him that contentment, what gave him that fulfillment and that peace and that happiness and that blessedness was that he was going to please God, period. That's where it came from. That's where it came from. Nothing else mattered. And so when many of his disciples walked away and left his little group and made them even smaller than before in John 6, 60 through 69, you don't see it saying Jesus was discouraged. When some of them wanted him to leave their area because they didn't understand he was only there to help. Have you ever just tried to help somebody as a Christian? You've tried to either help them understand, you've tried to help them with something, and they made it clear they didn't want any party. That happened to Jesus in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 21. They, they asked him to leave the area. And it doesn't say that Jesus got in the boat and, and wept over them. It doesn't say that Jesus was discouraged because his ego was hurt. It says that Jesus got in the boat and departed. He didn't get discouraged over that. Not even when terribly evil religious men sought and obtained and, and spread lies about him, which ultimately led to his arrest and his torture and his crucifixion. You know what it says Jesus did? You know what we do see written about Jesus at that point? When they got to the point that they falsely accused him, they sought false testimony against him, Instead of saying Jesus was sad or Jesus was discouraged or Jesus was overwhelmed, you know what we do see Jesus doing? You know what's written of him then? Instead of drowning in the depths of his own personal pain and sorrow and sadness and frustration, you know what we find him doing? Praying, Father, please forgive them. I don't know what they're doing. Luke chapter 23, verse 34. How do you do that? How do you do that? How on earth, Jesus, do you do that? How do you keep it together? How do you take people that have done to you everything they have done to you and pray for them? How is it that you can go through so much that you went through in your ministry and not get overwhelmed? Listen, you ever gotten overwhelmed in your life because people wouldn't listen to you telling people about Jesus? You ever got overwhelmed because you're trying to do the right thing and somebody gets frustrated with you? Jesus did. But he doesn't get discouraged. He goes to his father in prayer and says, Father, please forgive them. How do you do that? I want that. How do you do that? The answer is very simple. We think it's more complicated, but it's really not. It's extremely simple. We 
can do the same thing and we do it the same way that the Apostle Peter was divinely inspired to remind us to in 1 Peter chapter 2. Please turn there in your Bibles. Here's the key. Here's the answer. Here it is. Here it comes. Jesus, how'd you do that? How'd you stay so happy? How did you still have joy that night? Jesus, how'd you do that? Because I want that. This world is a hard place. I, I want that. I, I want to be able to hang on to that. I want... How do I do? Well, here's the answer. Peter, by divine inspiration, tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, about Jesus, who when he was reviled, did not revile in turn. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Here it comes. One simple sentence. But committed himself to him who judges righteousness. Underline it, highlight it, do something with it. Committed himself to him who judges righteously. That's the secret. That's it. You want secret to happiness? That's it. I'm telling you, that's it. Jesus did that. Jesus was only concerned with doing God's will. And as long as he did God's will, he was happy. Listen, in John 6, where the disciples walked away, the reason that Jesus wasn't frustrated and overwhelmed and all those things, he knew he was doing what God wanted him to. Is that right? Was he teaching the word? Peter said, you have the words of eternal life. We're not going anywhere. He just, as long as he was doing what God wanted him to do, Jesus was happy because he was committed to God. As a matter of fact, if we back up a verse right here in 1 Peter 2, back up to verse 21, it says, this is the same way we should do it. For to this you were called because Christ who also suffered for us, I'm sorry, for to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in turn, when he suffered he didn't threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. That night, that night, and Jesus prayed for his persecutors. The only way that he could keep that joy that he said just a few hours earlier he wanted to have his disciples have, the way that, that he did that was he knew he was doing God's will. He committed himself to God. And if God wanted him to go to the cross, as he did, Jesus prayed about it three times in Gethsemane, then he was going. And what brought him his happiness was being committed to God, the same example that we are to follow if we want that happiness in our lives. Listen, Jesus' whole entire earthly life was exclusively devoted to serving God, pleasing God, and putting God first in every, everything. And it didn't matter what other people said or did to him. That's the key. His happiness wasn't founded in how people responded to that. His happiness was found in how he knew God would respond because God is pleased when we are obedient to God. And it didn't matter what the people did. It didn't matter what they said. It didn't matter if his friends run off. It didn't matter. The only thing that mattered was he was committed to doing God's will. And so when he did it, he was successful and happy. That's where it comes from. That's just what the Beatitudes are about. That's what Jesus did. And that's why he was a happy, joyful person. Therefore, it did not matter how bad things got, how many bad things happened, how badly he was treated, 
how much he was hated, berated, or isolated. Didn't matter the terrible things that were said about, done to, or experienced by him. Here it comes. Jesus knew his purpose in life. John 6 and verse 38. He knew his purpose in life. He knew his purpose in life was to glorify God by being obedient to God alone. John 17 and verse 4. Jesus knew that he was only here to do the Father's will. And that as long as he continued to do God's will, no matter what else, anybody else, no matter what they said or did or anything else that happened to him, that he was successful. Let me ask you a question. Does it make us happy when we know we're doing what God wants us to do? Does that make you happy? Mm -hmm. Jesus was committed to doing God's will. It didn't matter what anybody else said or did or what happened to him. And so he had that peace and that contentment and that joy and, and that happiness. And because he was so completely devoted to doing the Father's will and he was successful and that brought those things to him, he also knew that the, that the Heavenly Father would take care of him. Listen, this is the beauty of this. If we're willing to do God's will and, and, and let God be God and obey God and, and not just call him Lord but do the things that he says, then God's going to take care of his children. Listen, none of us abandon our children, do we? We don't just throw our kids out in the street at three years old and say, hey, good luck. Well, God's not going to do that to us either we're his if we're his children. And we're living faithfully and we're trying to please the Father. The Father's going to take care of us. Even when bad things happen? Yep. Even when people say things about us? Yep. Even when we have a bad day? Yep. Uh-huh. Even when we have our crosses to bear? Did for Jesus? Yeah. Uh-huh. And see, brethren, that is the source from whence true and lasting peace and joy and happiness come from beginning to end of our earthly sojourn. Well, we are just simply committed to doing God's will and we do it. Boom. If we're doing that, we can be happy. And if you don't think so, I want to remind us of how God inspired the Apostle Paul to write about this very thing, and I want to prove it to you with this final text of the morning, Romans chapter 8. Everything we've been talking about, the Apostle Paul wrote to the first century Church of Christ in Rome and explained very similarly the same thing. As long as we are doing God's will, and we are striving and committed to him, entrusting ourselves to him and doing what he said to do. That's where our joy comes from, no matter what else happens. That's the message here in Romans chapter 8. Follow along with me, beginning at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Isn't that Jesus? As long as he was doing what God wanted him to and he knew that God was pleased, nothing else mattered. What, what, nobody else, he just did God's will. If, if he taught something that was true and they walked away, no, he didn't want to lose disciples. No, don't go home and say, well, Doug's glad that thinks Jesus was happy to lose this. No, 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 no. But what I am telling you is, is when people made their own decisions, Jesus could still maintain that focus and that path and just stay committed to doing God's will. 
And so we don't find him discouraged and overwhelmed in those cases. Romans chapter 8, again, verse 31, which we just read, and then verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Listen, if you're serving God and, and you realize what the Beatitudes say, and, and you are completely following God, you've got to understand God will give us all things, all things that we need no matter the situation, no matter the bad news. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. <clears throat> it didn't matter what the people said about Jesus. All that mattered was what God had to say. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Aren't you glad that Jesus is at the right hand of God this morning, interceding for you? That's why I'm here. I'm not here because they pay me to be the preacher. I was sitting in those pews a long time before anybody paid me. I'm here because of this. Because this morning, Jesus Christ is up there interceding for a sinner like me. God loves me that much. I still don't get it, but I sure am glad of it. It doesn't matter. <coughs> about the charges or anything else, as long as I'm doing God's will, it's what God thinks of me that matters, and I can be happy in that if I'm doing his will. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What's going to sever that bond? Tribulation? Jesus' troubles didn't separate him from God, did they? He had a bad day. We, we have a lot of tribulation in this world. If you don't think so, turn on the news for 30 seconds. But you know what? tribulation, those distresses that have come my way or come your way over the last few weeks. It's hard times, and there's been plenty of them. Believe me, brethren, I'm not belittling them. I know they're there. I know they're real. But it doesn't separate us from God. It doesn't stop us from enjoying what God has to offer. It doesn't have to stop us and steal our joy because if we're living for God and we're pleasing Him, He's the one who justifies. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? You've been, you, you had some hard times? Yes, yes. So listen, Paul knew something about hard times, okay? I'm just saying. But he says, those ain't going to sever the cord between us and God. If I'm living for him and he's the one that justifies then all this other stuff can't steal my joy. As long as I stay focused on the fact that I'm living for him and I'm successful at that and that pleases God and God's going to take care of me for it, then all of this other stuff is not going to steal the joy that I get by staying with God. It's not. And he says, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long, we are counted as sheep for slaughter. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The Greek means hyper-conquerors. It means super-conquerors. It's the same idea as the, 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 the world champion Golden State Warriors in basketball this year. If the whole team at full strength was going to take on my three-year-old granddaughter playing basketball, overwhelmingly conquer. That's what it means. We are overwhelmingly more than super hyper-conquerors in Christ. When the tribulations come, the distresses, the persecutions, the famine, the nakedness, the peril, the sword, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded, not even death, Paul says, neither death nor life, anything life can throw at you, or me, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers. It, it, 
despite what Russia does, despite what, what this, this nation does or that nation does, that's what he's covering. And believe me, he wrote in a time when Rome was doing some awful things, okay? No principalities, no power, nor things present. I don't know what's going on in your life. I know what's going on in mine, but I know in some of your lives there's some things that are really, really difficult right now. But also know this. If you're serving God every day and you're doing your best to live for him and with him, then there's a happiness that should come with that as you realize you're being successful in the eyes of God and God's going to take care of you because of it. That joy and that happiness should, should supersede all of these things. He says, nor things present, nor things to come. I don't know what's coming down the road for you. I don't know what kind of difficulties you're going to have, but I know this. I know that like Jesus that night, that we can still have joy if we understand that our purpose in life is to glorify God, to do his will. As long as we do that, we can have joy, no matter what comes. Nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, those things I'm going through, those things you're going through, they're not going to sever the cord between us and Christ. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? God's going to walk through it with you. Isn't that awesome? They can't cut the cord between you and God. Neither peril, distress, nakedness, sword, and all these things we hyper-conquer, because they cannot take us away from or separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. <clears throat> if you are not happy this morning, doesn't mean you have to run around with a big stupid smile on your face like I sometimes do, okay? If you are not, if you do not have that happiness and that joy and that peace inside this morning, a very loving suggestion from, from a brother who needs to, to be more joyous in his life too, despite things, and I preach this as much for me as, as for you. Listen, if you don't have that happiness, you only need to focus more on just simply doing God's will. And if you're doing that and pleasing God, there's a joy that comes with that that the world can't take if you don't let them. Doesn't matter what people do or say. You try to do the right thing for God. You try to do it because that's what you believe the scriptures say and you're absolutely sincere and you step out in faith and you do the right thing and somebody has a fit about it. You can still be happy. You know why? Because God's happy with you for doing what you should have done. Whether anybody else is or not, God is. And God is the only one that matters. He's the one that justified us, Romans 8, 31 through 38. Jesus' happiness, joy even in going to the cross because he only focused on pleasing God and that made him happy. The rest, it mattered but not like pleasing God. This morning the question is, are you living a life where you're doing the will of God to the absolute best of your ability? Are you hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Are you, are you seeking God's will and seeking to do the right thing and studying and seeking to walk in the light? And are you, are you doing well with that? Because if you are, you, can, you should have a joy that, that exceeds anything that happens because of it or through it. You should. Jesus did. That's the secret to living happy. Maybe this morning you, you, you're not experiencing that because you've never fully surrendered to Christ. You've never truly given it all up. And maybe some of you, especially some of you younger folks here this morning who've, who've never been baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you've never humbled yourself and done that. 
Happiness begins when you know your sins are forgiven and you allow God to be your father. Your name is written in heaven. That's where it starts. Where you can know that. These things are written, 1 John 5, 11 through 13. These things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. Hey, for all of you that have been baptized into Christ, is it a blessing knowing that you're going to heaven? Right? So if you've never done that, this morning we would baptize you for the forgiveness of your sins. Maybe you're somebody who's done that, but there's, there's not... Is not the joy that should be. After hearing this lesson, you say, that's not me. As a Christian, I should be, but that's not me. We can pray for you to better understand that as long as you're doing the will of God, that you can have that joy knowing that you have pleased the God of the universe. We can pray for you. Pray for your struggles. Struggles are real. This morning, if we can be of assistance helping you to get that happiness or that joy back, what did David say? Restore to me the joy of my salvation. If you need your joy restored, we'll pray for you. We'll do anything we can to help you as we stand and sing. Come to the front right now. Let it be known what you need.